First, guardian angels and patron saints. Pray for us. <laughs> Don't want to forget them. Today marks uh, one year of my service as your pastor. It was the 20th Sunday in Ordinary Time that I arrived here last August. And so, <laughs> thank you. While I was away and obviously preparing for this homily, I was thinking back over the last year and all of the challenges and blessings that it brought. Um, I ended up writing about 10 pages worth of material, which I'm not going to share with you today. <laughs> You're welcome. But, but uh, certainly, I wanted to hit the highlights and, and maybe the lowlights. Summed it up as the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I'd like to end on a, on a high note. So let's start with the bad. I remember some of the challenges that have been just thrown at us. How many times have my staff said to me, Father, it's usually not like this. <laughs> We had a massive sewer backup at Our Lady of St. Rose. $15,000 excavation of our sewer main involved raw sewage spewing up onto Quindaro Boulevard like an oil derrick. A massive gas leak here in Christ the King Darren Hall, right, that threatened to blow up our building. It cost another $15,000 to fix, all of which was covered. Both of those uh, things were covered by supplemental help or outside donors of the archdiocese. Um, so many challenges, learning the, learning the ropes, um, moving into the rectory, a lot of the challenges of getting that ready. I have a cat allergy, so cleaning that out, decontaminating. I slept on a cot in my office for the first six weeks of my stay here. Then the smell in the rectory, where was that coming from? We had a sewer gas leak in there that was making my staff sick. They'd get a headache if they were in there for more than an hour or two. Right, all of these, all these crazy things that just were thrown at us, but we made it. We made it because of, I think, some of the good things that are present here. Again and again, I've come back to a scripture verse this past year, First Corinthians chapter four, verse one. This is how one should regard us, St. Paul says. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I had to remember that while we were cleaning up sewage. <laughs> These aren't complaints. This is exactly what I signed up for as a diocesan priest. I love being a pastor. I love being a pastor here at Christ the King and Our Lady of St. Rose and Blessed Sacrament. I'm happy to serve you here for as long as I can be of service. And that's because of the good things that are present. Fostered a strong connection with the Wyandotte Pregnancy Clinic located on our premises and the service that they give to women in crisis pregnancies. I'm glad for the tremendous patience and support of my staff at all three parishes who have had to make big adjustments to me, get to know me, let me get to know them, and explain things to me over and over and over again how, how they're to go. I've enjoyed getting to know the few of you who have invited me out to dine at your homes or have social situations outside of church. I think the way the community pulled together around the funeral of Mr. Mr. Neal, who was killed out here on, on Leavenworth Road uh, in front of our students, right? The way we pulled together and supported our kids and supported that family and honored him uh, was, was a real testament to, to how strong this family is. What a, what a beautiful thing in the midst of, of something dreadful. Um, I'm delighted by the quality of our school and its leadership. 
which has received, as I mentioned last week, the second time in three years, the Catholic Education Foundation uh, Archbishop Nauman Award for Excellence. Right? That's the second time we've received that award in three years. Um, that's a huge boost. What a vote of confidence. What, a, what an encouragement from the Archbishop and from the superintendent and from the leadership of our diocese that the direction we're headed with this new curriculum, the classical liberal arts, it's the right direction. It's that we have their backing, we have their encouragement, and it's something that is affirming a great set of leaders, teachers, and families that are part of our school community. What a great thing to see. And of course, all the behind the scenes work of our parishes, for our volunteers, those who are taking responsibility in hidden ways to keep these places running well. Lots of you taking responsibility to say nothing of the daily work, of course, of, of the church, right? the, the mass, confessions and sins being forgiven, children being baptized, the dead buried, the sorrowful consoled, couples being prepared for their life together. Right? This is the real substance of my life as a priest. Which brings me then to the last category, which I'll explain why I choose the, the term ugly to refer to it. The bad, the good, and the ugly. Here we are in the midst of one of the most challenging times in the church and in society that we faced in our lifetimes. Um, certainly prior ages have dealt with bigger challenges, world wars, terrible pandemics, and so forth, but it's challenging for us. We have a situation where some virus jumped out of a bowl of bat soup somewhere in the world, and now we're all at each other's throats. Easter's canceled. Why are you wearing a mask? Why aren't you wearing a mask? What a great time to introduce some drastic changes in the way we worship at church. <laughs> when I came back from vacation, I noticed a stack of messages, a stack of notes on my desk or in the sacristy that parishioners had sent expressing concern over the changes that were taking place in mass, the style and the tone of music. So, I was grateful for those letters, those that had been signed, I read, I don't, I don't read letters that aren't signed. But I was grateful for being approached. I want to communicate and talk about these things, some of the circumstances around the launch of um, our plan to, to create a music program here at Christ the King have been interrupted and delayed in ways that we, we would rather not take place. So I want to lay out the plan today as best I can. I'm, I'm, it's going to take a little while, so please be patient with me, but I think it's something that we all are interested in, and it's something that I have yet to really articulate for the parish. So I'm going to take my time and do it properly. So when I arrived here about a year ago, it wasn't long before Vincent Moran, who had been very beloved and talented director of music, departed from the parish. He was no longer employed here. It's something, it's not, it's not what I wanted to happen, but it did happen. And so I had to take a, a hard look at how we were going to um, get our liturgical music back together for, uh, for our parish. And due to a long history of revenues sinking here at Christ the King, and also noticing how our school needed a, a more robust music program, we only had a part-time music teacher, I thought it would be a good move to combine these two positions of music teacher at the school and liturgical director of the parish into one. That this would save parish and school money 
And it would also allow us to hire somebody who was really good at what they did. So after a nationwide search, uh, Mrs. Fithian, Kathy Fithian, the school principal and I, hired Dr. O'Neill to fill that position, to build a sacred music program for the school, and to create more collaboration between us, between the parish and the school. In fact, we should hear more from the school than here's our next fundraiser, but actually see some of the fruits of our work of formation and education, and to see what beautiful things are happening there. And I thought, what a, what a wonderful way to get children singing at our Sunday Masses, right? This would be a way to teach children how to, how to sing, introduce them to the technique of singing well and singing in a group. It would introduce them to the wealth of our Catholic sacred music tradition. And they would enrich our liturgical life here at the parish, as well as giving them a sense of doing something, contributing something that no one else could, right? giving them a sense of responsibility. You might even get their parents to start coming to Mass. This saves us money while parish revenues continue to decline and has been for years. So that's, that's the idea, but the execution is going to take some time. Adding to there the fact that we're now in a pandemic, a time in which the Archbishop has asked that congregational singing be suspended. Okay, that's not my decision. That was, that was something that the Archbishop requested. And so music, uh, liturgical music staff across the country have been trying to be creative about, well, how do we still have music at mass without encouraging people to sing? And so one of the ways is choosing less familiar music, music that we don't have the urge to sing along with, unfamiliar music that will nonetheless still enrich and allow us to contribute to our prayer. This is actually a health protocol people are less likely to sing along with music they don't know. So that has been part of my decision to switch the tone and the style of our music. Of course, um, Mark and Bernadine, who have been stepping in to fill the gap that was left by Vincent's departure back in the fall, have been devoted. They've been fantastic. I'm grateful to them. Our whole parish is grateful to them. And they will continue to play at Masses. They will continue to play the second Sunday of each month. And apart from, apart from them, our other cantors and choirs have not been willing to come back yet. Right? They're still concerned about, about the pandemic, about, about COVID. So those are basically our, our only options right now. And given that we now have a full-time director of sacred music, I can't justify paying him not to play for mass. We can't afford to do that. I can't then afford to pay another musician to play for mass. Mark has been very generous with us. Um, and I know these are things that are more familiar to you and are helpful to you to bring stability in a time when everything seems to be up in the air, everything's changing. That being said, what we're experiencing now is a temporary hold on building our program because we can't get choirs started again. We can't be inviting people back to sing in the format that Dr. O'Neill specializes in being able to do and to train people to do. So, what we're experiencing now is a little seed. It's a little seed. And we can't judge the whole tree by what it looks like still at that very rudimentary beginning level. It's, we've got to give it time. And I ask for your patience during this time as things do feel very disruptive. 
Now, these are the these are the kind of practical reasons for these changes. But I also want to address a more fundamental a fundamental reason for the direction that we would like to take our sacred music program. The more fundamental reason for this change and the direction that we want to take is that we have to recover our musical inheritance as Catholics. The Second Vatican Council called for a reform of sacred music. It says in that council document, the fathers of the Second Vatican Council said, the musical tradition of the universal church is a treasure of inestimable value, greater even than that of any other art. The sacred music of our tradition is the crown jewel of our artistic tradition, better than painting, better than architecture, better than sculpture, anything else that we have, it's all surpassed by the beauty of our music. The council specifically called for an adaptation of this rich patrimony and to bring it into the lives of our people, not to confine them to monasteries or cathedrals, but to spread it, to enrich the life of our parishioners spiritually and musically. The council did not call for an altera a wholesale alteration of the musical landscape of our worship. But that is what happened after the Second Vatican Council. That is what happened. Music became much more hymn-based. That was a relatively new thing in the history of Catholic worship. What Vatican II actually called for was, was misinterpreted or maybe mis misapplied in certain situations, and those practices soon became widespread. Few people know that in fact the Second Vatican Council taught that the proper music for the Mass is Gregorian chant, accompanied by the organ. That's the teaching of the Second Vatican Council. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only music that we're allowed to have in worship. In fact, it opened up a great deal more to be able to be incorporated into the church, but that is to always have pride of place in our communal worship. Now, it's no surprise that music that is much more approachable, much more naturally singable by congregations was very attractive, much more appealing on several levels than the harder, more difficult music that is normally associated with our tradition. It's easier for musicians to play, especially for volunteers or non-professionals. It's easy for us to sing along with. And so a whole cottage industry in the 70s and 80s arose and began to produce a widespread publication of the church music that I grew up with, that you are very familiar with, right? Many of these hymns, they go back as far as I can remember to my own childhood. I remember them fondly. They will never not be a part of my memory and my experience as a Catholic. But there was a point in my own youth, in my own kind of high school years, where I began to notice the music at Mass, it, it didn't sound sacred. That's hard for me to explain what I mean by that, but it, it, there, was a, there was a feel and a tone that didn't feel like what I would see, for instance, when the church was portrayed in film. People outside the church naturally see a kind of sacred difference in the church, but within, I, I didn't feel that. I didn't feel that. It felt like music from a very specific time and place, but that 
that would shift over time and didn't connect me with my past. It wasn't until I was in college that I really began to learn about what Catholic music in its sacred tradition involved. I learned that this music had been prohibited, it wasn't forbidden, it, it had just been fall, it had fallen into disuse. I was fascinated by this tradition. My peers were fascinated by this tradition. I felt like an orphan and I discovered an old family album and I learned the long history of my family stretching back into the past that I've never been taught and connected me to them but then also told me that this family is alive and wants to be a part of my life. That's what it felt like to discover this, this musical past. I had a connection to the people who had lived and prayed often very simply in the past ages of the church and times and circumstances and places very different from my own, but that nonetheless united us. I had a connection to saints that came to know God in these same forms. I prayed and repeated the same songs and music that they had sung and prayed. This was difficult material, it was difficult music. It required sacrifice and discipline to do well. But it fascinated me and it had a deep effect on my spiritual life. It gave me the ability to pray along with the liturgy, actively, but also internally, interiorly, allowing the words of the scriptures to expand. It felt like they became even more heavenly as they were sung in this way. This kind of music felt less like a performance, more like a prayer. The lyrics weren't written by a contemporary composer, but were the spirit-filled words of scripture themselves. It communicated feelings to me of, of intense sadness, or lament, or abandonment that did not make me very comfortable, but also brought me joy and exaltation in a way that I'd never experienced with the music that I'd grown up with in church. It made me want to do wild and adventurous things for this tremendous Savior who'd had such music written for him. In other words, I fell in love. And like many who fall in love, I made a mistake. I assumed that everybody loved what I loved. We often do that, those of us who think, well, what's not to love? I wouldn't love it if it weren't great. Don't you love it too? Not always. Perhaps I can be excused then. You can, you can forgive me for being perhaps too enthusiastic and wanting to share this tradition, this music, this patrimony that is ours. But I want to share it nonetheless. And I have to understand too that you love Christ the King and you love what you've come to experience here. That's a good thing. Let's expand our loves. Let's expand the breadth of that and include even more in it. I know that these are difficult changes to be introducing, especially now. But we've been through these kinds of changes before as a church. Think back on the 1960s and 70s and 80s those of you that can remember that far back. Imagine how 
you felt at that time when the liturgical traditions went from Latin Mass to something more resembling what we worship, what we do at Mass today, relatively quickly. I mean, in some cases, overnight. Right? That that changed things quickly. It confused people. It put them off. It made them feel like the church that they'd grown up with was gone. It was just gone. That wasn't fair to them. And I don't want to recreate those same conditions that disorient people and frustrate them unnecessarily. I really, truly do not. That being said, I'm not introducing something that's new, but something that has been and always will be Catholic. A year ago, in my very first homily here, I told you, what I preach and teach and proclaim, I would strive to make sure that that is the Catholic faith, nothing more, nothing less. My opinions, my preferences, my judgments will never take precedence over that. As far as possible, I, I want to avoid seeming to be arbitrary or imposing my own preferences, but instead to always present the authentic practice of our Holy Church. And I hope to articulate what that vision is in the coming months or the next year to be able to preach and teach about why this is our, our practice and our faith. But it also, it also gives me a sense, as I hear the, the words of St. Paul in our second reading today, St. Paul is grappling with the fact that he's fallen in love with the, with the risen Lord, but the people that were, were most close to him, his fellow Jews, seem to have no interest even to reject this as something not from God. It befuddled him. It saddened him. Come, what can I do? What can I do to introduce you to this beautiful reality of resurrection, right? the freedom of our faith? It puzzles and saddens me that oftentimes Catholics can sometimes seem as if they don't want to know about their own tradition. They don't want to know their family history, so to speak. They don't want to live it. They don't want to share it. They don't want to be proud of it. It can sometimes feel like we want our own spiritual ancestors and their legacy to stay in a kind of attic, out of sight, out of mind. So how do we strike the proper balance? How do we strike the proper balance between retrieving and handing on our own tradition, and on the other hand, being stuck in the past, trying to reproduce a moment in the past that we idealize as somehow being better than now? I believe the key to this is our school. We can strike the proper balance in light of our school. When we introduce children in our classrooms who have we have a privileged opportunity to form them. When we introduce them to something that can capture their imaginations, and give them an experience of a deep interior joy in worshiping God through sung prayer, I think we strike that balance because children are naturally creative and lively in retrieving these things and making them their own. By hiring Dr. O'Neill to create the sacred music program at Christ the King School, that is our goal. It doesn't mean that contemporary music is bad, or that we can't bring it into church, or that it's, it's over, it's gone. I myself have been deeply moved by songs that are written by contemporary Catholic composers, Matt Marr, Audrey Assad. But that's not what the Second Vatican Council asked us to do, write new music. We'd be doing that anyway, right? That's a human thing. 
What the Second Vatican Council asked us to do was to dust off our own musical heritage and bring it to the faithful in order to awaken a new love for the Lord in our own time, our own very troubled time. Now we need it more than ever. It's not something to put off until things get better. And so if I can be accused of wanting to turn the clock back, I would say accurately that I want to turn it back to the Second Vatican Council and no further. These are going to be challenging times for us. I'm not surprised that the initial response is negative. I probably could have articulated this better and earlier. Change is hard. You've had to let go of your previous pastor, accept a new one that you don't know. You haven't even had a chance to get to know Dr. O'Neill. I don't think you even know what he looks like apart from the picture in the bulletin. Right? We want to provide opportunities for those conversations to happen. I feel that frustration too. I want to get going, but we can't. The situation here at Christ the King, I am considering and praying over how best to stabilize our parish and school long term and allow them to continue on an even stronger footing. Our situation is dire. It's dire. The handwriting is on the wall. We cannot continue as we have been as a parish in school and expect to survive for very long. I believe that this parish and school are worth saving. But in order to do that, some desperate measures may need to be brought into, the, into play. A number of the parishioners have asked in their letters, why is it that we don't have a parish council? Why aren't we being given a chance to have input or feedback on these things? And to which I say, certainly my door is always open. My door, Dr. O'Neill's door, is always open for a conversation about how we can improve. But I'll say this, Father Mark actually disbanded the parish council before I arrived. There was no parish council when I got here. I was overwhelmed with what felt like getting to know not three, but five different communities. Because here at Christ the King and Blessed Sacrament, there's two parishes within the parish, an English and a Spanish-speaking parish, that really don't mix. Choosing members of a parish council shouldn't be something that's done haphazardly. I wanted to get to know people in order to invite in the right mix, the right representation. That hasn't been easy. That hasn't happened. But I would also say this. Committees tend to reinforce the status quo. That is the one option that's not available to us, staying as we are. Either we change or we disappear. I have prayed about this. I have discerned. I have consulted with others inside and outside the parish about this. And I'm not looking to just be arbitrary or be seem like I'm a controlling, power-hungry person. I want nothing but the best for our community and for our families. It's a tough path for this parish right now. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require patience. It will involve suffering. And I'm asking you to trust me. That's a tough sell. However, I promise you this path is not a dead end for us. Learning to retrieve this tradition, put it to work in our own spiritual lives, it's going to offer a deep renewal for those who receive it with an open mind and heart. 
something that all of us need to do, myself included. I'll end with just a, a remark from a parishioner, a former parishioner of mine, who I explained the situation and asked her, what do you think, what do you think it would be good to say to help persuade my people that this is, this is a good thing and, and to trust me and to trust Dr. O'Neill and, and the work that we're doing in our program? This mother of seven wrote me back and said this. The church is deep and old. We step into her history for a brief time, but even so, the church's history becomes ours. That music, the Catholic culture, the spiritual life, the lives of the church's saints, even Christ himself, this is given to us. This is our inheritance. And to each age, it is given. Each age experiences it in ways that are ever ancient and ever new. Because the church belongs to Christ. And he lends this quality to whatever is his. The church is very good at showing us the beauty she has acquired through the ages if we let her. The tradition of beautiful sacred music helps us to know Christ and the church better so that we can love Christ and his church more fully. This is an adventure. We can never take it all in. But when we allow ourselves to be captured by what may at first be off-putting, unfamiliar, or different, we may, it is very likely that we may, gaze deeper into the eyes of our Mother Church and be surprised by what she evokes in our souls. Beautiful words, beautiful thought. And one that I leave you with is I ask you to pray for the success of these changes. Pray for peace of heart for all of us. Pray for me as your pastor. I know you do. Know that my door, Dr. O'Neill's door, is always open to have constructive conversations about where we need to improve. But let's all take for granted, let's put before our eyes that we're all here to do the best that we can for our families and for our children. In the end, I don't believe this needs to be filed under the ugly category after all. I'm very hopeful that in the next year, this will have a lot less bad in it. Now that we got the sewers fixed. And a lot more good. I don't think the word ugly applies at all, but beauty. The good, the bad, and the beautiful. That's what I think this next year is going to be. The Samaritan woman in the gospel today was rewarded for her perseverance. May this next year be one in which we hear our Lord respond to our own persistence in prayer, asking him for what we need from him. May he say to us, great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you wish. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.